Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Um, luckily, one of the reasons I started doing the show in the first place is that I love to get uh, catalogs from publishers and go through them and pick out delicious new items and uh, get uh, review copies and keep up with the, 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 the changes and the uh, conversations going on across a lot of uh, particularly academic uh, publications. Um, and uh, a year or so ago, I uh, one particular book from uh, Oxford University Press caught my mind simply from the title, which was Mindlessness, the Corruption of Mindfulness in a Culture of Narcissism. And uh, since I've been kind of on the edge of some of these worlds of uh, mindfulness and uh, Buddhist meditation and yoga and this whole uh, sort of uh, holistic uh, healing zone, uh, for a long time as a, a practitioner, but also as an observer and a critic. Um, I kind of treat this as another zone of culture to uh, bring critical intelligence to comparative intelligence, uh, see how these things work with uh, larger issues in society. So I was very attracted to this book. Um, and I started reading it, and I realized that uh, the author, Thomas Joyner, who's uh, joining us today on, uh, on the show, um, you know, had a different take on mindfulness than I did. didn't come from a Buddhist background, didn't end up really talking about Buddhism uh, very much. And so at first I was like, oh, it's not really what I'm, you know, it's not really how I understand this, uh, this practice. Uh, but I was sort of uh, ensorcelled by the, the author's voice and um, his somewhat uh, uh, di digressive, but uh, in incredibly entertaining and often very insightful and uh, provoking uh, book. Uh, which is really not just about uh, how mindfulness has become sort of absorbed into contemporary culture, uh, but really the larger sort of problem of narcissism uh, in our culture, both inside the kind of self-help, uh, self-care, healing cultures, but really more broadly and, and particularly in terms of uh, younger generations as well. And um, Joyner's main work is in, uh, in suicide, and most of his books as an academic psychologist and a clinical psychologist have been focused on um, why people commit suicide. Uh, his previous book, The Perversion of Virtue, is a fascinating argument about murder-suicide, which is, of course, a particularly a harrowing uh, kind of event and something that draws a lot of attention when it happens. And he offers a fascinating argument for understanding why people uh, motivate themselves through a sort of misplaced use of uh, values, of positive values, values that, that, that most of us would share uh, in order to motivate these things. So that's really his, uh, his main focus as a scholar and mindlessness, uh, to my mind is a little bit more of a, a throat clearing and he's about my age. And, uh, I, I have to say that I resonated with a tremendous amount of it, even though if I, I come from a, a somewhat different angle on a lot of the, of the topics. And I really enjoyed, uh, sort of entering into his, his mind stream, uh, sometimes, uh, grumpy, sometimes hilarious, sometimes a bit mocking. Uh, he, he assures me that he's, he's kinder in conversation, but I don't really care actually, because I really, I really quite enjoyed uh, that part of the book. And these are issues that have been uh, on my mind uh, quite a lot over the last uh, few years. So I was really happy that, 
Thomas agreed to come on the show. So, Thomas, thanks for uh, joining us. I should say uh, one more thing that you are, uh, I, I didn't give your, your location. Uh, you're a professor of psychology at Florida State University, and you operate the Laboratory for the Study of the Psychology and Neurobiology of Mood Disorders, Suicide, and Related Conditions. So welcome to Expanding Mind. Thank you. Happy to, happy to join you. Great. Well, let's let's start off uh, talking about uh, mindfulness and the and the the particularly the way that it has sort of uh, its value, the language around it, the practice around it has uh, really exploded over the last let's say ten years uh, in psychology and mainstream psychology in places of the culture that have nothing to do with Buddhism, where the the word is first sort of associated with at least in my uh, view. So I'm I'm kind of curious just to get a first get a, a sense from you um, about uh, how significant the sort of language and practice of mindfulness has become in contemporary psychology uh, in the broadest sense. Before we get into some of the distinctions you make between authentic and what you see as a kind of narcissistic uh, mindfulness, but just set the stage for us in terms of from a psychologist's point of view tracking the, the changes in the field, the arguments in the field, the changing practices, how significant has mindfulness become? I think it's become pretty significant. There's a growing interest, and I don't see that abating anytime, anytime soon. Um, there's a cachet to it that I think fuels that. And, um, you know, there's, there's other aspects to it, too, that I think fuel it, including that it can be pretty useful when it's done in the authentic, you know, as intended, originally intended fashion. So um, its popularity is substantial. I wouldn't say that it's dominant within academic psychology by any means, but even there it's growing. And then when you get outside of the academy and, and talk about just, you know, sort of pop culture, general culture, just general mental health settings, uh, the interest is substantial. Well, and so since you mentioned this this distinction, you 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 take the bold stance of of writing about uh, authentic mindfulness, and I, I I noted something really interesting in the the Amazon reviews uh, for the book. There were there were two reviews, uh, which to my mind doesn't doesn't suggest that it does just because there's only two reviews it doesn't mean it's not a great book. There was a two star who who was someone who was like. I'm a long time Vipassana meditation practitioner, and this guy, you know, he might have done a retreat sometime, but he doesn't understand mindfulness, and, you know, he talks about authentic mindfulness, blah, blah, blah. And then the other review was a five-star, was another person who was like, I've been practicing meditation for, you know, 20 years or, or five five years or whatever, doing mindfulness practice. And I was in, I, you know, the, the his insights and his critiques were incredibly meaningful and really reflected my experience of the people around me who are doing these practices and seem to just becoming more self-obsessed. So it was really interesting that there were both meditation practitioners and they had these very different views of it so uh, what what for you when you say authentic mindfulness what are you uh what are you aiming at in a nutshell i i i view it as the non-judgmental dispassionate awareness moment to moment of everything um and and as much as you know as you know as much as everything can be attended to and and the point of departure that that I think separates well it definitely separates me from 
from what I view as distorted mindfulness. And I actually, you know, I don't really pretend to speak as the authority on mindfulness, but I think it does separate authentic mindfulness from the perversions of it. And it's that when you, when I say attention to everything, I mean especially not including oneself. Um, and that's where I think the distortion creeps in is that the the versions of it that concern me and that I criticize at you know at some length in the book are very self-regarding. Um, they, they turn mindfulness inward way too much. Whereas I think that the self. You know, when you really get dispassionate about it, and again, that's supposed to be part of the definition, if you get dispassionate about it, the, the self is one of the least interesting things about the cosmos. And so it, it seems to me ironic that that would be the first item in, in a lot of people's list of, of what's interesting. I think it's the last one. Um, so that's a little bit on, on how I view the, the basic definitions. No, I, and I think that's very fair from coming from a you know a longtime Buddhist practitioner and 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 reader of the of the tradition, studier of, of Buddhist thought. Uh, it is, I mean, I think you're pointing at one of the the fundamental ironies about how a lot of certainly Eastern ideas, although we could talk about Stoicism and Western forms of mindfulness, and and I hope we we do that in a bit because you you say some really interesting things about Stoicism at at the end of your book. Uh, but just staying within the kind of um, popular Buddhism, which is really where most people encounter uh, the ideas of mindfulness, I also have that impression strongly that it's it's both about the the totality of phenomena, all the you know events happening in the environment, your reactions to uh, the environment as well as the incoming perceptions themselves, but also that the material coming up from within the self is treated very dispassionately that that to my mind there's a lot of overlap between in this sense between classical stoicism and uh, a buddhist orientation and yet you're completely right that as that you know set of practices and ideals got translated into popular society is that even even though it's still sort of packaged as this uh kind of spiritual a practice of of uh, of insight or or being with a reality as it arises, um, it becomes uh, incredibly uh, self-regarding and almost becomes the in in your view, it almost in in many cases it becomes almost the opposite of what uh, it's it's intended. So it's a it's a rather dark irony. How, how did that come about? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the larger culture of narcissism. Uh, you know that process of, you know, insularity or, or or self-regard, that's certainly by no means specific to to anything in mental health. Certainly not specific to mindfulness. It's a general cultural phenomenon, and and really what the book is doing is decrying that cultural phenomenon, using mindfulness as one example. The in the book, it's the example of how that um, unfortunate cultural trend has, has manifested. But one could, one could write a, a much larger book on the culture more generally. And, and so I think that's the main source of it as to why that in turn has happened. That's, that's a bigger question than I, I just, I don't know the answer to. And, and, you know, you mentioned the, the, the bad review versus the good review kind of thing that that's, entirely, I think, expected. Um, there are a lot of 
people who who really do have a fanatic quality to them about mindfulness, meditation, things in this neighborhood. And so it really doesn't matter. I, in my experience, it doesn't really matter what you say that they're they're going to reflexively counter that and feel challenged and 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 not react terribly well necessarily. And then there's another group who are also very interested, very steeped in meditation and might be Buddhism or, or mindfulness, you know, things, again, in that general neighborhood who completely get what I'm saying and, and are very enthusiastic about it. And I don't know exactly, you know, what the proportions are, but it might be about half and half in terms of the reactions to the book. I expected that. <clears throat> and the, the, the critics will, I think, say rightly that I'm a novice, uh, a neophyte when it comes to that. I, I say as much in the book, um, but my view is that that didn't, you know, doesn't necessarily stop me from having an opinion about what's going on culturally and more specifically within this domain. No, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't, it, it, it's, I had a similar kind of reaction in that there's one passage where you talk about how, um, uh, for you, it seemed kind of, uh, uh, sad that some people who had very active, rich minds would feel compelled because of their devotion to mindfulness to say, instead of letting their minds wander when they wash the dishes, you know, the, the kind of very creative space that you can get into when you're taking a walk or daydreaming. And that's where a lot of ideas come from. And as a writer, I, I can, you know, very much a, a, attest to that. And you were sort of decrying the way that people, um, you know, get, fix their minds on the task at hand so that they're only paying attention to the feel of the water or whatever going on out of this kind of gripping sort of mindfulness uh, practice, which a lot of people do do. I think that's actually not a correct interpretation of it as well, but even from within the tradition, but that's okay. We'll, we'll let that aside. But I did find how, like when I was reading, I was like, you were, you were saying that, that maybe these kinds of emptiness practices or, or lack of thinking practices wouldn't be so good for a writer, but I find them incredibly useful. Like I totally need to reboot my brain with uh, silence and uh, non-discursive awareness in order to be able to go back into the, the nest of vipers. So I'm like, well, he, his, he, you, you know, your, your experience in meditation differs from mine, but your conclusions, I think, are incredibly important. I mean, I, I, I've just, you know, and many of the people I know who, who are kind of more in, in this world uh, for a long time, th this is a common conversation that people have. And it's, uh, and it's just as true with yoga, you know, and I, I've been practicing yoga as part of the yoga boom for 15 years and, you know, and watching it become more and more glossy, more and more self-regarded, more and more mediated through Instagram, more and more about youth and beauty, more and more about celebrity, less and less about, uh, objectivity or, or, uh, self-critique or, uh, opening to, you know, genuine connections with others. So the, the thing that you're, you're, the symptoms you're identifying, I think, are, are incredibly uh, uh, important uh, to talk about. But you also have the provide a lot of some some very interesting evidence about the claims that are being made for mindfulness. So it's not just that people enjoy the practice, but people are looking at it as a kind of panacea of like a way out almost from the the stresses and incredible complex difficult time personally, culturally, politically, environmentally that we're, that we're in right now. And I think that part of that fanaticism is because it seems like a, a panacea that's, that's uh, you know, supported by the, the, the value of tradition. Uh, but it, it, you know, takes this very different kind of 
uh, very different kind of form. So what are some of the studies that people have done that for your for you, from your perspective uh, should uh, you know hedge our bets on the the deep uh, effectiveness of mindfulness, which you also acknowledge that it can be very useful in certain circumstances, but there are definitely being claims made for it that go far beyond uh, what it seems to be that the the evidence supports from the studies you were looking at. Yeah, I, w- I would start out by agreeing that that it's you know helpful for some people, it's enjoyable for others, it's a hobby for others, and I, I actually have absolutely no problem with that at all. Each to his own in that regard. Um, but what I what I really drill down into in the book is is two two categories of of studies that raise some pretty serious questions about overhyping uh, the evidence base for my for, for something like mindfulness. One category has to do with uh, clin- mostly clinical trials that have compared mindfulness to something else with regard to some outcome like depression or stress stress or anxiety or or what have you. And then the other category you might think of as um, examples of how mindfulness backfires. And those get very, very little attention uh, among mindfulness enthusiasts, but they exist for sure. Uh, with regard to the clinical trials, there, there have been some supportive trials, but one of my points in the book is that there have been a lot of unsupportive t- trials too. And then some of the ones that are the best controlled by people that I respect the most and and in outlets that I think are the most reputable, when you really look into those studies, those really high-quality studies, the evidence base starts to really disappear. Uh, The other angle that I take in the book is, well, you know, as compared to what? Mindfulness is great for for this or or for that. As compared to what? And the main uh, example that I have come to favor has to do with as compared to something as mundane as taking a walk every now and then. You know, if something's a panacea, if it should be on the cover of Time magazine like mindfulness has been, well, then you would think it would outperform taking a walk every now and then. But it it really doesn't when you look at the, the, the studies carefully. So I came away unimpressed with the clinical trial base, but but still with the attitude of, sure, you know, if, if you like to do that and if you're if it's relaxing to you, if it's a hobby, why not? But as a as a cure for these incredibly difficult, complex behavioral medical issues, it's not even close to that. And with regard to the back the, uh, the backfiring, you know, the <clears throat> you mentioned writing a while ago, and it's it's interesting to think about that. At least when I'm writing and and things are kind of clicking, uh, you know, I'm, the the state is 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 sort of in a sense, it's it's kind of like focus, so focused that there's not really time for attention to you know whatever's going on outside the window or whatever's going on inside my head. It's just what I'm writing, and that's the entirety of what I'm attending to. And what's interesting is that if you get people to be mindful, it can disrupt those exact times of of flow. Or to take another example of elite performance, like putting in golf. Um, and so there, that's that's sort of what I meant by the backfiring category of studies. There's there's some evidence that mindfulness, yeah, it can be helpful sometimes, but it can also backfire sometimes. Yeah, and I think in that case, that's where you get into these issues of like what people really mean by it. And they're they're in my you know again, this is just from my perspective. I'm not grounded either in clinical studies or in some particular Buddhist tradition. This is just from my experience of being being a meditator and, and spending a lot of tension on attention. 
uh, is that it seems to me that one of the ways that people interpret it is there's this real gripping quality. So it becomes like like in, in sports, you talk about the, the, the problem of choking when people get too self-aware. And so their, their reflexive intelligence, all the skills they've built, built up that become more and more sort of not necessarily automatic, but kind of out of occurring outside of conscious decision making, the choking can, ha can, can intrude when there's too much awareness around those processes and you're not able to do that. And I think something like that happens when people are kind of gripping onto an idea of being present or an idea of being aware that's, that's a little, that's kind of mechanical. Um, and I, I, even in my own experience, I think I went through a period when I, when I did that, and maybe you need to do that for a little while as a part of training. Uh, but it's very different. Uh, I think for, it can be very different than that, where it's much more about allowing whatever's happening to kind of be occurring in the space and not ne necessarily trying to like force it into a certain kind of a category. So I could see some of the things there. And I can also imagine that it doesn't, doesn't always help with depression because if you, you know, it seems like one of the, you know, you know, you're the, you're the expert here, but like that one of the features of, of depression is this kind of, uh, rumination where there's a sort of like, uh, you know, repetitive self, -re self referring loops in the mind that kind of grind your, your focus and your, your emotional state down and down and down. And yeah, you can be mindful and try to re return your attention to just what's going on. But uh, in my experience, you, I often need something a little bit more like a sledgehammer to knock myself out of that kind of rumination. And I think trusting on mindfulness alone to do that, it makes sense to me why the, the studies on that wouldn't necessarily be robust and might even be actually uh, harmful in, in, in some ways. Do you think, do you think the harms are, are underreported or do you think there is a sort of potential harm that, that people should be more aware of as, as they embark on this to, to cure you know, psychological problems? Well, I mean, I do think that they've been underreported um, to, to a degree, yes. And there's also anecdotal examples of people who, uh, and I, I cover some of these in the book, too, of, of people who have gone, for example, to a, a meditation retreat or a mindfulness retreat that was, retreat that was a, you know, a full day or sometimes multiple days, and now this is a very small percentage. Uh, from memory, it's less than 10%, but it's well above 0%. Uh, of people, they, they come away from those retreats actively harmed, uh, some to the degree of spiraling down into very severe, in one case that I read about, depressive disorder, in another case, a psychotic disorder. Um, so they're definitely documented evidence or, or examples rather of, of this backfiring sort of effect. When you mentioned depression and, and breaking out of ruminative loops, and I actually think that th this is one thing where mindfulness, when it's real down to earth and real concrete, can be very helpful to people because when they're just really sort of focused on these self-recriminations and they take them real seriously. They feel like they're delivered from on high. They have a special power. And if you can learn to just kind of pivot away from that and say, that's just a thought. All that is is just a mere excretion of my mind, and it doesn't deserve any more power or any more you know, credit than other excretions of, my, of myself, like saliva or sweat. That's all it is. You know, if you can do that, I, I, I can see how that would be helpful for depression. So, you know, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater when talking about this, but the parts that I don't think are helpful 
Yeah, because notice in that in that what I just said that example, it's very selfless. It's saying, you know, whatever happened to come up from my mind in this case, self-recrimination. Who cares about it? It's a it's a mere trivial detail among trillions and trillions and, tr- and trillions. It should be dismissed. Notice that that's, that's selfless. Um, and and that that version, I, I'm kind of I resonate to that. It, what I'm really protesting is is when people turn that back around and make it all about the self. That's that's where the the problem really exists. Yeah, that's really really clear. But I want I want to stay with that positive example because I think it. It's it's you know let's talk a little bit about authentic mindfulness there and then then we can get more into the to the narcissism critique. Uh, that first off, I think that again is a great example of the ways in which authentic mindfulness is in accord with traditional Buddhism as well as uh, as well as with Stoicism. And there, there's something also about your your description there where you emphasize what you also call in your book that our our uh, creatureliness. But there's something about the the contemporary psychological frame, you know, in in terms of pop psychology, how people are thinking about themselves, that, that tends to want to hide from the creatureliness, from the fact that we are sweating and with the saliva and we smell and we got to eat and digest and there's this all these processes that are that we're absolutely embedded in and to and that our resistance to that is also then becomes a resistance to other. Uh, you know, other other features or other ways of thinking about our experience that could potentially allow us to to, uh, you know, reframe, in this case, voices of self-recrimination that seem to be like, oh, now I know the, the truth about myself, that I'm utterly worthless and I'm a burden on society. And you recognize like, oh, I'm just farting again here or whatever. Like, and there's some way in which the honesty about the body, as well as the honesty about or, or the, the awareness of the kind of endless stream of crap that our minds come up with uh, that uh, is one of the ways towards this kind of more um, authentic uh, mindfulness. So I, th- I thought it was interesting that you used these bodily examples, which also come up in, in certain in, you know, Buddhist readings, the teachings that I've, that I've read, but you use the, the, the creatureliness of us as, a, as one of the ways to ground uh, uh, get away from believing in, uh, in this case, these sort of uh, self-recriminatory voices. Yeah, I mean, I, well, another, I, I didn't really think of this for the book, but it just occurred to me, I kind of wish I'd put it in there, because I, I think it might be pretty good. But my thought is that it's, you know, we're literally stardust. Our bodies are literally stardust. And, and the current culture of the self I think we'll view that and say, oh, we're all as important as the sun. Everything revolves around me, just like it all revolves around the sun. Whereas my view of it uh, is you're just one speck in trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. And in that sense, you know, I like that stardust um, analogy. But I agree with you that that creatureliness, that bodily aspect that's obviously essential to our natures it's very consistent with the the sensibility of the book which is that you know we're you know not particularly special this particular moment in time is not all that special it's it's it there's nothing to be narcissistic about really um you know and so that's that all all that line of thinking i think in my in my view kind of kind of buttresses one another 
Yeah, well, so we, you know, as, as you said, I mean, this whole issue of narcissism is very complicated. There's a lot of different elements of it. But one thing that's popping in my head, it, it's popped up twice in our conversation so far, so I thought I'd say it, is there, uh, I've read a couple of accounts of, of the sort of first wave of Eastern teachers that came to the West in the 60s or 70s, uh, Buddhist or, or, you know, Hindu, it almost you know, kind of doesn't matter in this case. And one of the things it, that a number of them reported that one of the things that was peculiar about the people they were teaching then is that they were not at all prepared for the for the what we would call problems in self-esteem that people had, that there were that people felt terrible about themselves in some ways or they felt they were worthless or that those kinds of feelings. And it seems to me that in, in some ways, this kind of current culture of narcissism partly bound up with the way in which we have taken in these Eastern practices is this kind of like massive overcompensation for something that was also a problem in the, in the, in the get to at the beginning of the thing that people weren't quite ready to be genuinely or, or authentically selfless, uh, because their, their selves were, were so broken that they had this kind of sense of not being good or not being worthwhile, not being worthy. Um, do, so you don't you don't talk about that too much in, in in the book, but could you can can you is it possible that part of this narcissism we see now, partly using psychology uh, uh, as a way to justify itself, um, is it, it kind of in in, re, in reaction to a sort of earlier moment where people just didn't feel good about themselves at all, and so they kind of need there sort of needed to be some sort of uh, balancing that kind of went too far or or. Is that too naive a story? Uh, it's an interesting possibility. I, and to tell you the truth, I just really don't know the answer to to where this surge of narcissism comes from. I, I don't really attribute it to, to being all that special in the sense that I think the pendulum swings back and forth over history pretty regularly. You know, away away from selfishness and and. And then back towards it. I, I think that's a, you can see that pretty regularly throughout a lot of strands of history. So I think it's just kind of the natural tension that uh, that kind of p- keeps pulling from both ends, and the, the selfish end, for whatever reason, is winning these days. Uh, I trust that that pendulum will swing back. Uh, although you know some of what I'm discussing in the book makes me question whether that's true. Um, well, you we'll talk about what, that. What, what, what are a, some of the larger sort of, whether it's it's particular studies or your your own anecdotal you know sense of the world or uh, what what are those parts of the trending that that really concern you? Where you're like, wow, is this thing really ever going to go back into the box, or can we can we outpace this in in some ways? Because it is kind of a a blight. I mean, I, I talk to yoga teachers who are who have at least they're more my sensibility. Uh, and you know, they're kind of in agony about it because they, they really believe in these practices as, as supporting a a kind of broader, more cosmic, more stardust stoic view. And, uh, and what they keep running into is this just a tremendous kind of, again, like Instagram, you know, if you're a yoga teacher now, you need to have an Instagram feed where you're always posed in front of exotic locales and everybody looks, you know, gorgeous and the whole thing. So, I mean, it's really an issue. <laughs> so what, what are those, what are the signs that you see that, that we're really in this deep now and that, uh, you know, we got to do everything we can to, to pull it back? Well, I mean, you know, there's one 
strand of, of scholarship on this that, that Gene, um, a psychologist named Gene Twenge, San Diego State, has, has been generating for, for years now. And, and what Gene has done is documented in numerous studies a, a pretty clear empirical increase from the 70s and 80s, say, from uh, right now in things related to in narcissism itself and in things related to narcissism. And so there's that documented trend that, that she and, and others have, have, you know, I find pretty convincingly laid out, although there's always, you know, criticisms of various strands of scholarship, and, and hers is no, no exception, but I, I'm convinced by it. And then there's just, you know, anecdotal examples all around us. If you if you just attune your mind for a day to what's being advertised on TV or on signage, billboards and the like, or, you know, just from any number of sources, the the emphasis of the self is just, it's just unmistakable and and, uh, and 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 clearly, I mean, it's clear to me at any rate, not in a in the best interest of a of a um, you know society that needs to pay attention to things like obligation and duty and honor and things and service and things of that nature. Um, that's what concerns me really is the undermining of values like that. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about values because it was interesting when you when you when you took a turn towards values in the in the book. It was it was interesting for me because um, from my perspective, you know, I associate I, I, I some of the associations with a, a discussion of values often goes into uh, what I would consider a, a conservative direction in both a good and a bad way. In some ways, I'm conservative about things in some ways. I mean, to use that term in a more classic sense, not in terms of the Republican Party, which isn't conservative in many ways. Uh, but and so I, it always gets a little squeaky for me because I'm definitely of the like I was not into sports. I was not into the military. I was not you know, I, I'm a child of like California. I'm a child of like that sort of world. So but as I get older and I think this is really common as you get older, you start to go, well, actually, there were values that were motivating me a long time. And in fact, when I when I am confronted with challenges in my life or decisions that I, I find that the clearer I can be about the values that I can really honestly support, that actually the easier things are. And those values do have to do with other people. They don't have to do with my own, you know, that I need to transcend or become realized or whatever they are. They, they're about interactions with people and also with the environment, with being aware of you know, that you're in a planet and you're just this little animal and all these kinds of things. So I, I, I'm it's myself, I'm kind of moving around that. And, and I, and so some of it's, very, it was really interesting to read you because some of the values you have like really worked for me. And some of them I'm like, I'm not going there. You know, I can't, I can't jive with that. It's not my culture. It's not where I come from. Cause in some ways I grew up in this more of this narcissistic, you know, <laughs> meditation influence sort of, you know, California kind of scene. Uh, so I, I, I want to go a little bit more into when you talk about values in that way, do you see them as things that are are shared? Are there some that kind of need to be shared? Are there ones that you feel are kind of almost natural to a, to a strongly functioning society? Or are there particular ones that need to be kind of as it were, imprinted or or uh, enforced 
through how we're raised or how society talks about itself or through, you know, family ideas. Um, so, so, you know, I'm just want to oppress you a little bit on, on how you see the, the positive functioning of, of, of values and how you would like them to be, uh, more a part of people's lives. Sure. I mean, one way to come at it is it, it, it may not even be, although I, I think I used the word a moment ago and I probably use it in the book too, but values may not be the, it might be a little distracting because, you know, it brings up in people's minds like conservative family values or stuff like that. And that's not really what I'm talking about at all. R- rather, I, what I'm really talking about are two, at least two core aspects of human nature itself. And, and one has to do with autonomy, you know, self-determination, which is a, a, you know, a value, if you like, that I respect fully. Um, but it's not our own, the only aspect of our nature. There's a very strong, you know, sort of aspect its intention was self-determination and namely that's our gregarious interconnected socially dependent aspects where we you know we're just mere organisms that are very dependent on everyone else and without them we we like a lot of species in nature you know we 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 would perish and and that's a that's an important aspect of our nature too just as important as the more self-oriented autonomy value and so what I'm arguing is that those th- two things are in natural tension with one another. That's part of our nature, and that things are, are skewed when they get too far pulled in either direction. Right now I think we're getting pulled too far in the self-determination direction. But I, I don't think we should go away from that towards you know f- the other pole fully because um, that pole, if you get too close to it, you know, the cultures that most resemble it you know, perhaps are things like sporting cultures, uh, military cultures, um, not for everybody. I, I fully understand that, but somewhere in the middle, I think is for everybody. And, and my my sense is that we've we've gotten away we've gotten away from the, the middle uh, a little too much. Yeah, I, I would agree. And again, just as thinking at it as a, as a Buddhist, it's 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 again really ir- ironic because you know one of the things they're telling you is like there isn't really a self. And that the reality on some level is uh, is defined by the interdependence of everything that is in does not exist on its own. There, you know, you don't exist on your own. You're always in, in in relationship to others, to the world, to the past, to karma, whatever you want to call it. And it's just funny how even even at a time of a lot of discussion of environmentalism, you know, there's a lot of we're very aware of ecology now. Ordinary people are, are facing the realities of climate change unless they're strenuously denying the realities of climate change. That's another conversation. Uh, but in any case, it's definitely in our face that we are uh, dependent on food systems. We're dependent on the bees. We're dependent on what happens with the, you know, uh, with, with weather patterns and uh, that, that we're all very, very dependent on these things. And yet somehow... It, it doesn't really enter into the self in the same way, like that, that there, there's still this kind of room for, for turning away from uh, the, the awareness of that kind of uh, interdependence. So, you know, in this case, what is to be done? You know, the, the classic question, uh, what are some things that we can do to sort of, you know, uh, underscore that, to, to shift the gaze, as, as it were, uh, away from the endlessly recursive, um, self-mediating self that seems to be driving so much of cultural activity these days. 
Yeah, it's a big question. And, you know, one thing I say in the book in response to that question is, is to, is to punt kind of, I mean, I, in all honesty, I really don't know of any really thoroughgoing solution to that. But what I do kind of go through are, you know, several, you know, a collection of small things that might add up to something that might, um, you know, they might just kind of push the the dial back towards the middle, you know, along that continuum from self determination uh, out to the other pole towards you know interdependence on one another, and and one of those things I I do think is a um, a promoting and a, a full understanding and a, and a promoting of of the values values of stoicism. Um, here too, I confess that I'm no expert. Just like with mindfulness, I'm no expert. I have to confess up front, I'm no expert on stoicism. But I, I, I do see the value in it. And I, I think it, like like mindfulness, can be distorted and um, and misunderstood. The parts that I like about it, at least one part that I like about it a lot, is um, you know the 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 the, the simil- some of the similarities it shares with mindfulness. For example. Uh, an awareness on the present moment about how that's what's in front of you. That's what you got most true control over is what's happening right now, not what's going to happen so much, and certainly not what has happened, but what's happening right now. Um, And then the other thing is an an appreciation of how ephemeral everything is. Um, And what that some people take that to mean, you know, that's tragic or that's sad or that's morbid because it means that everybody's going to be dead within years or decades or whatever. Yeah, I guess so. But on the other hand, kind of flip that around. And what it says to me is, if that's all that's true, well, then think how special this moment right here is and this moment too. And and that's kind of what I take stoicism to mean. And, and interestingly, it's got a lot of commonalities, a lot in common with what I view as authentic mindfulness as opposed to the distorted versions. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, that's my, you know, uh, I remember when I encountered stoicism in my twenties and it was a, it was a life changer, even just, you know, reading a few texts, reading Marcus Aurelius, reading some contemporary, uh, you know, stoics. Uh, and I, I think it's a incredible, uh, incredibly valuable thing. It's, but it's hard to, it's not, it's not an easy to, it's not an easy sell. You know, that's, <laughs> that's part of the problem I think is just that because we're in this, this hyper consumer, um, culture and that the objects of consumption or the things that are being sold are, are our own experiences, mind states, attitudes. I mean, it's becoming really, uh, incredibly close the the sort of loops of consumer ideology and who we are. It's like they're they're almost like one thing now woven together. Uh, that it's just it's just a, it's things that <laughs> don't have a have a happy ending or some kind of beautiful you know d- d- uh, strawberry at the end of the road are kind of hard to uh, they make a hard sell or people only really are ready to listen to them if they're suffering and if they're honest with their suffering if they're being you know, if they're working with their suffering, but that's also part of the problem. And and this is one thing since you, you know, you're, you're sitting there, you're a psychologist, you're working with one question I'd just love to ask, cause it's, it's been bugging me over the last year or so is just the, the category of, of trauma has really taken on a whole cultural role now that is really seemed to me transforming the way people think about suffering or approach their suffering 
or take responsibility or not take responsibility for their suffering. Um, and that it's another example of where a kind of psychological category as it goes out into popular culture actually starts to remake institutions. It's compl- it's transforming, you know, um, universities through trigger warnings. Uh, people are, you know, demanding that things not be certain ways because of trauma. And of course, at the same time, trauma is real. We're very aware of PTSD. We're very aware of, of the, the, the suffering that, that soldiers go through, that people who are raped go through. I mean, it's, we're very aware of the reality of trauma at the same time as trauma is kind of becoming this, um, I don't know, larger story that also seems to be distorting um, a lot of the what, what suffering is and how, what we can do about suffering. And I, I, you know, this, you have, this is a sort of a minor thread in, in your book, but it's definitely there as well. And I would just love to ask you, since I know you're thinking about these things, can you give me a, a sense of how you see trauma as a category working uh, today in people's psychology and in, in, in institutions? It's similar to, similar to your view. Um, I, you know, I, I'm definitely concerned about the deterioration of the, of the true category of PTSD, into something that just everybody has because they're triggered by this or triggered by that. Uh, I think it's very concerning, and and uh, it's 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 concerning, and it's also ironic. The the part that concerns me is that if you really do have PTSD, you you really are suffering for number one. For number two, you, there's no question about the traumatic nature of what you've been through. It's it's defined by it, and and lastly, the treatment for it is um, is what's kind of ironic because what the trigger warning folks would have you think is you need to avoid every little last whisper having to do with whatever supposedly traumatized you, whereas actually the scientifically supported truth is that in order to come to terms with PTSD, you do absolutely the opposite of that. You, you, you confront the trauma. Now, it needs to be gradual, but, but still gradually over time with coaching and with therapy, you confront the trauma and work through it in in direct fashion, and that's just the opposite move of trying to avoid every last you know reminder of it or or any any passage having to do anything with it. I mean, one one thing I I'd like to remember is that PTSD is a very real condition, and when you have that condition, it, it's it's it, to put it mildly irksome to hear other people claiming that they have it and they, or any version of it when they absolutely don't. I mean, imagine, just to give you an analogy, if someone's suffering with schizophrenia and that person's talking with some person, you know, some friend or, or acquaintance, and the acquaintance says, you know, I'm feeling really schizophrenic about things today, you know, meaning that their mind's mixed up or they, you know, lost their focus. It's offensive to say that with somebody, to somebody who really does have schizophrenia. And and I feel the same way here a little bit about the, the you know, changing of the boundaries of, of trauma. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a strange one. Now, when, when you, when you talk about that, you know, one of the things you're referring to is that, you know, PTSD is a real condition and we know about this and this and that. And of course, if you look at the, you know, the history of psychology, we see that sort of syndromes get identified and then they're renamed and then they're split. I mean, here, autism is a great example. You know, there's Asperger's syndrome and then, well, there's no Asperger's syndrome. And it's, there, there's something also constructed about these categories that we nonetheless need in order to make real distinctions, let's say, between someone who's, you know, back from Iraq and has nightmares and can't function and is self-medicating with alcohol and 
depressed and all that versus someone who has some, you know, is whatever something that's mu that's much more uh, mild, but they're claiming as as using the same kind of language. You need to be able to go look. There's something called PTSD, but and I I'm, I don't know how much this is true of PTSD, but there's certainly the case if you look at the history of schizophrenia, for example. There's all sorts of different accounts, different words, different clusters of symptoms. There's something constructed about psychology that you know some critics go so far as to say, oh, it's all just a construction, it's all just a story, blah blah blah. That's obviously too far. But how do we deal with the fact that psychological categories and practices and therapy regimes are a moving target? They're always changing. They're always sort of re reframing themselves when we look at the import, when we look at the need to make the kind of distinctions that you just did. Uh, there, you know, there are real phenomena in nature that just have fuzzy boundaries. Um, that's not uncommon in, in nature at all. Um, just because the boundary is fuzzy or, or you know, seems seems to move depending on your your positioning, it, it doesn't mean that the thing is not real. And so, so I think it, what that means is that some back and forth about you know boundaries um, of a category like say PTSD or schizophrenia or any really of the mental disorders. I think that's natural enough to have a, a you know scholarly objective debate about that. Uh, because you know things in nature do have sometimes do have fuzzy boundaries, but what I think is happening is categorically different than that. It's it's just move, it's not debating about whether the you know boundary is within this little space versus a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left. What's going on now is just a complete moving of the boundary all the way out of that frame into something totally different, and it's just not scientifically defensible. That's that's a different thing than than fuzzy boundaries. That's just moving the boundary all the way out of where it belongs and changing the nature of the, the thing under discussion, the definition of it. So to me, those are those are two different enterprises, a scientific debate about fuzzy boundaries versus just arbitrarily placing the boundary in a place that simply doesn't belong. And do you see that logic playing out like in your in your institution, in your university and, and things that are going or or the way in which, you know, students are thinking about what's going on with them? I mean, are you are you do you have like a front row seat because usually university pe people have a kind of a front row seat of a lot of this stuff playing out at least in among you know millennials and and below. So, are you very aware of these uh, uh, issues as they come up in your in your kind of your career life? You know, somewhat. You know, certainly universities can be a front row seat as you as you said, but within universities, I think there's different areas that have more exposure than others, um, and. You know this this department of psychology that I'm in, like like most departments in the 21st century, is a science department. It's not part of the humanities or any other thing than science. And there's something about an emphasis on science which sort of turns down the volume on a lot of these kinds of problems. I guess it's just an empirical, you know, an agreement, uh, implicit agreement about uh, among everyone that we're going to be empiricists and not, you know, really claim that just because something feels so, it is so. But we actually got to prove it in a consensual, agreed upon, state the rules first kind of way. So I think that kind of mutes a little bit of my exposure to it. But nonetheless, uh, I'm a creature of the university, just like other professors, and so I definitely see my see my fair share. Well, one question that we just got, uh, you know, a, a few minutes left here. But I'm, I'm all. Anytime I talk to university professors, I'm, I always ask them about even if it's just anecdotal, their impressions of 
you know, the younger generation, let's just call, call them the millennials. Um, and you, you do some of that in your book as well, but you, you, you do some interesting evidence-based <laughs> arguments from more, more than anecdotal impressions. Um, so can you tell me what, from, from, the, from the evidence that you've looked at, as well as your own impressions, looking at society, looking at your own students uh, or students in your university, what do you see uh, as the so, some of the most distinctive and you know possibly alarming or not, but the at least distinctive elements of uh, changes that are going on in terms of people's attitudes about their their own psychological positions or their attitudes towards trauma or, or entitlement or these things that people kind of bandy about sometimes in sort of a loose way, but I suspect you have a, a, a relatively rigorous sense of what these some of these shifts are. Well, I mean, one one that pops into my mind that that I, I found kind of shocking, and yet it's completely consistent with the the theme of a culture of narcissism, and it has to do with how how shockingly few of the younger generation are interested in things like life insurance as compared to their older cohorts. And this is adjusting for the fact that that there's age differences, of course. So, in other words. If 50 years ago you asked a bunch of 25-year-olds about whether they would probably have life insurance at some point in their lives, the vast majority would automatically uh, state, of course. Nowadays, that's changed to where it's a minority of 25-year-olds think life insurance is a great idea. Now, the reason I think that's relevant is because if you back off of it a second and think, life insurance is a very selfless thing, in one sense at least, because you know, you're really spending money for other people going forward. It's not for you. Uh, it's for your family, granted, but um, in, in a sense, it's a very selfless thing. And so uh, that's one thing that pops to mind. Now, the other is just a personal preoccupation of mine and fascination of mine, which has to do with space travel and the attitudes that, that we take towards uh, space these days. I just think are unfortunate. A lot of people are very focused on Earth, very focused on themselves, whereas when Apollo was in its heyday, that attitude wouldn't work and didn't work, and and we did incredible things with relatively few resources. So I I, I hope we get back to that, uh, to, to a society where things like the Apollo program and, you know, other kind of massive launch projects, not necessarily just with space, but with everything, is something that's more you know, more in tune with the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, it's funny you you, you talk about the 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 space program some in the, some in the book and particularly about um, the the training that that astronauts have and their own ability to be kind of mission ready and the kind of uh, selflessness that's required to be able to to serve in that kind of an environment. Um, you know, they're almost, you know, almost you could characterize as a kind of robotic quality, even almost like, you know, you're, it's not about your feelings, man. You got to, you got to show up and do the job. Uh, and it's funny cause I, 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 the people I know are still psyched about, like, they think Mars is cool. You know, like they, they, they'd rather have humans go than, than robots go. Uh, but I guess it is, it does seem to be a whole part of the culture imaginary that's kind of collapsed. And I'm wondering whether that even like the life insurance is a different, seems like a different topic, but it has to do with the collapse of trust that larger institutions are going to do something good and worthwhile, that there's just this really deep loss of, of trust in l large scale social projects, whether they're 
corporations or a government program or a insurance agency. It's like it's like it doesn't people aren't able to trust on that level. Yeah, fair enough. And there, there's good evidence. If you, in fact, if you directly, you know, measure things like trust in, you know, government or in corporations, that definitely has eroded over the last few decades. And and that's you know in in part that's with reason. There's not you know that's not totally unexplainable, or you know implausible to to think. Uh, there are reasons for that. But I guess what I'm decrying in the book is the is the next move. You know, you don't trust, say, government or the space program or doctors or whatever it is. That my next move would be, all right, well, let's fix them together. You know, if we got a problem together, let's fix it together. The problem I'm I'm focusing on is that that's not the move of of this generation, largely speaking. Um, their move is I'll fi- I'll just do it myself. You know, I, you know, I, I'll just you know I'll just worry about me. And I'd rather a different reaction be more like, let's fix it together. If there's problems, true, okay, let's fix them together. That's what you know, we've done before over the course of history. Uh, I trust we can do it again. Well, that's good. I'm glad you can uh, uh, say that. I feel bad we didn't actually talk about at suicide at all because that's your, your main forte and, and a lot, you know, written some very interesting uh, material on it. So... Um, uh, I, I did want to ask one little final question, though. When you talk about uh, stoicism and and the the value that it has, and and the sort of authentic mindfulness to kind of bring it back to that, was that something that you in your own life at some point kind of consciously practiced, or did you just find that that's sort of naturally how you came to deal with the challenges rising in your own experience, and you know the, some of the challenges you talk about in the book, your your own personal challenges. Um, so, but was there a kind of point where you were almost like kind of practiced that as a, as an, as an effortful, uh, attempt to, um, overcome some of your own inherent narcissism or your own misguided thinking? Not really. I mean, I, I, I would say a couple things about that. One is that I think a lot of this is largely, largely temperamental, um, you know, attraction to say military cultures or, or football cultures or or what have you a lot of that's just really genetic and temperamental um in 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 its development so that's probably a large source of it for me uh, i'll tell you another big source of it though is um again this wasn't effortfully cultivating this on purpose but uh i, I grew up focused and obsessed with football it was a big part of my life and and that you know the kind of things that you got to do on a day-to-day basis really do push you into these kinds of stoicism, true mindfulness kinds of states that without it, you just can't be very effective in the sport. And it wasn't really on purpose that I was developing that quality, but I, I, I kind of had to, to play, to play ball at that level. And, um, and so that's just benefited me going forward in handling, uh, you know, various challenges, whether they be tragedies like has, have befallen my family for sure or whether they've been more positive challenges that, you know, like, say, professionally that I've uh, had to face and have successfully navigated. So I think sources like that, for me, have been um, have been primary. Uh, having said all that, I think the evidence that one can effortfully develop these productive, useful, positive, stoic 
values, I think the effort's there that you can do that if you put your mind to it. Well, great. I think we're going to have to end it there. Thomas uh, Joyner, thanks so much for joining us on Expanding Mind. Uh, my pleasure. I appreciate it. Great. Uh, Thomas Joyner again. The book is Mindlessness, The Corruption of Mindfulness in a Culture of Narcissism. So until next week, keep your minds open. Mm-hmm.